This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Diversity and inclusion are not terms that everyone knows, particularly if you spent your career in the industry as a lawyer or an accountant. These are not terms that roll off the tip of your tongue and you don't understand it. And maybe the perspective that you bring is limited in the sense that a lot of people, when they hear diversity, they think simply representation. Uh, you know, what are the demographics in my organization? But diversity and inclusion are far more broader terms and far more value terms in an organization than simply that. That was Pamela Gibbs, director of the SEC's Office of Minority and Women Inclusion at the SEC Speaks Conference, talking about the importance of diversity and inclusion at the commission. The increased focus on initiatives related to diversity and inclusion, as well as allyship, is now spreading throughout the legal and accounting professions. On this episode, we are joined by two DNI champions who will explain how you can promote diversity and inclusion where you work today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's really good to be with you, Chris. I'm excited for today's episode. We're actually straying from our usual strict securities regulatory diet to focus on a larger, more important topic, diversity and inclusion. The topic is critically important in the financial services industry and beyond. While today's workforce is more diverse than ever, senior leadership ranks in many industries remain largely white and male. Meaningful progress on the diversity, equity, and inclusion front cannot happen without action, courage, and sponsorship from those in positions of power. Today, we will talk about how we can be more effective allies for women and people of color in the workplace, and how we can disrupt traditional patterns and assumptions, and make an impact. And we have two excellent guests to help us break down those issues. Chris, tell us about the guests. I'm, I'm very excited. We've got a mentor and role model uh, in the accounting world joining us today. And, and for those of you out there on the accounting side of the coin, if you're involved in any way with the AICPA, if, if you are a young CPA today or you, you follow the diversity and inclusion efforts in the accounting world, you've heard of and, and probably heard from Kimberly Ellison Taylor before. For decades, she's been a leader in the accounting and finance space, having consistently been ranked as one of the most influential people by many of the top publications in our field. Uh, recently, she served as the 104th chairman of the AICPA. Uh, she utilizes her experience in finance and technology as the CEO of KET Solutions, LLC. She's a former executive director in finance thought leadership with Oracle, uh, a founding member of an organization called Chief DC, which is a private network focused on advancement for female leadership here in the Mid-Atlantic region, and is an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon's Heinz College CIO program. She's consistently published on diversity and inclusion topics through YouTube, uh, the AICPA, the Journal of Accountancy, and countless other mediums. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to Insecurities. Thank you, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. 
We're very excited to have you, Kimberly, and I am also so pleased to introduce my friend and colleague, Jenna Garver. Jenna is an investment management partner at Troutman Pepper, where she advises investment advisors and their proprietary private investment funds. She also represents institutional investors, funds of funds, and family offices in connection with their private fund investments. Most importantly for our purposes today, Jenna is a diversity and inclusion champion. She is actively involved in numerous women's and diversity initiatives in the financial services industry. Among other efforts, Jenna serves as a committee member for 100 Women in Finance, an organization committed to empowering women working in the finance industry. She's also a sought-after speaker on diversity and inclusion issues and has recently hosted a number of Men as Allies panel discussions, including presentations for the New York Alternative Investment Roundtable and the Association of Corporate Counsel. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's really an honor to be having this discussion with you and uh, what a great opportunity it's been for me to meet Kimberly. We want to start today with a, with a really basic question, and that is just sort of understanding some of the problems or challenges that women and people of color face in the workplace. There are, as we all know, myriad systemic challenges that negatively disproportionately impact women and people of color. These may manifest as failures to recruit, retain, or promote people. And we'd like you to share your perspectives on the problems and challenges women and people of color face in corporate America. Kimberly, last fall, you wrote an article for the Journal of Accountancy titled, Together We Can Make a Difference, a 12-step plan to address racism and unconscious bias. One of the 12 steps you identified in the paper is acknowledging the challenges faced by the Black and African American community. Will you please tell us a little bit more about that? Thank you so much for asking. This is really a timely and relevant discussion in today's environment. There are many challenges that are faced by people who find themselves in a marginalized community. And so I don't want to imply that it's only the Black community, because I do believe that these challenges are pervasive in a number of different ways. And so when you consider that in many um, Black and African-American communities, that there's not necessarily the support system and the educational system that is needed. There aren't enough, I would say, visible representative role models in fields that we aspire to. A lot of our young people, and I've been very pleased and and privileged to go into elementary and middle schools and speak with young people on career day and speaking with them about what they'd want to be when they grow up. And it is not that uncommon to find that someone would say a football player, basketball player, they don't really look to the accounting profession. And I would say they're not really looking toward the legal profession because they need to see more people that look like them. And then they need those individuals to help provide the mentoring, the coaching, the sponsorship. And so many places that we show up, we don't always get the opportunity to raise our hand, to be the one selected for the stretch assignments, to be the one who is given an opportunity and the benefit of the doubt. Many of the colleagues that I've spoken to have said, 
that our runway is shorter for making a mistake. And that could be for any number of reasons. But a lot of it is back to some ism. And you can name whatever ism it could be. But I think that we have some challenges that are not unique to us, but we certainly need an environment where we would have the mentors, the coaches, the sponsors, the stretch assignments, the infrastructure that would support and empower our ability to be successful. And it's not necessarily always there. And so that's what I am hoping through articles like that, that we would highlight the reason it's so important to listen and learn and to be an active ally, especially as it relates to women of color, because my particular demographic is being left behind in so many ways across a number of these different initiatives and discussions. So I'm looking forward to having more discussions like this. Jenna, what's your viewpoint on some of the things Kimberly just discussed related to the challenges specifically for for women in the professional environment? Everyone has challenges. And being a professional is not easy, no matter who you are, where you come from. But when people are marginalized, they don't have access to the same support systems uh, that, you know, frankly, white men have enjoyed. And whether you're a person of color or a woman, I think some of the struggles are the same. Some are quite different. Last summer, I think we all realized how much more difficult it may have been personally for our colleagues of color in dealing with all of the emotional baggage that came with last summer's violence and protests. And we're still, of course, seeing that play out now. And having to bring all of that with you in your day and balance that with the work at hand, that is something that was perhaps uniquely experienced by people of color in the workplace. For women, we've also seen a lot of personal struggles this past year with COVID. And unfortunately, a lot of the child raising, which is now in a remote world, turned into educating on top of the normal household tasks, has really fallen heavily and disproportionately on women who are also trying to continue doing their job during the day. So I think the past year has really showed how there are just constant challenges for marginalized persons. And while their challenges are different, the result is really the same and that they need support. We need more support in order to effectively do our job and seek these opportunities, which will help us grow and hopefully rise together, have more representation in positions of empowerment. And so, as Kimberly said, we can be seen and we can inspire the next generation where they can see it, they know they can be it. 
And I loved you touching on kind of how you bring all of this to work, right? These are the the issues that are affecting these individuals in, in the profession, but it can it can change. It can affect each person differently, right, in terms of how, how focused or how impactful these things are. Uh, and there's a challenge that, that we've come across in some of the research for this episode, you know, that I've heard about in the past. You know, we've heard a common challenge described for women and, and people of color called the double bind. A social psychologist named Adam Galitsky had a very popular TED talk on this a few years back. I'd encourage anybody listening to, to definitely uh, tune into Adam Galinsky's TED talk. He, he says that the, the gender double bind, as it relates to women specifically, is that women who don't feel empowered, have the courage or the ability to speak up, go unnoticed and are potentially passed over for those stretch assignments or or those uh, you know types of advancement but on the flip side that women who do speak up are often viewed negatively or potentially get get punished or admonished for for speaking up and Galitsky's point is not that the the challenge itself is the issue but that it's not a gender related issue but more of a power dynamic in the workspace. Uh, Jenna, do you think that's a fair assessment? Do you have any advice for those who might be experiencing a, a double bind type issue? I definitely think it's a fair assessment. Um, I think that the reality is that women and people of color have been trying to push their way into the professional realm, which for many of us still is reminiscent of what you would see on an episode of Mad Men. And it's hard for us to balance bringing ourselves as we are and fitting into a scene where there are no characters like us. It can certainly be a double-edged sword if you, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I think the only solution there is you just have to be who you are. You you have to speak up when you are not being heard. You need to be an advocate for yourself. You, all of those things are so important. Um, I, I wish I had like practical tips mm-hmm. about that and perhaps Kimberly has more, but I want to be careful here too, because the the past year and a half or so I've been trying to focus less on telling marginalized people what they should or shouldn't be doing and focusing more on those with power, how they can help create a safe space for marginalized people to be able to speak out and be heard. But I think Kimberly probably has uh, a bit more to say on this particular topic. Thanks, Jenna. I appreciate that. I would say that when it comes to the double bind, it is more about the cognitive dissonance between what you've always thought or grew up thinking and the disconnect of meeting that in reality. And so for our male colleagues who have been surrounded by lots of strong, positive, impactful, powerful women, when they meet a female that they don't believe has spoken up or advocated for themselves, we will often hear, not always, but you'll often hear, we wish she would speak up more. We wish we could hear her voice, her opinions. We, we want her leadership more directive. And then when you have colleagues who have experienced women that they think should be like 
leave it to beaver, <laughs> dating myself. But if, if that's your perception of what um, women are in the workplace or should be, then whenever you meet that strong, powerful woman, you are going to wonder, okay, I don't think I can work with her. I, I think this isn't going to work. We've got some work to do because it means encountering and challenging your own implicit biases. And I don't know if completely people are really thinking that that's what it is, but it cannot be that I could be in a meeting and hear that someone doesn't have executive presence, which I think is tied to confidence. And then at the same notion, have someone say, oh, they're too aggressive. Well, what does that mean? And I agree with Jenna. You're darned if you do. You're darned if you don't. You can't win for losing. We have to recognize and, and actually call it out a little more. And when you see that happening, it happens in boardrooms all the time. It happens when you're considering someone for promotion and someone in the next and probably in the same conversation. One colleague will say, oh, she'd be great. The other colleague is like, oh, I'm not too sure. And then you're wondering, well, why did the ball move? What happened that both of you would have a different perception on what we're doing here? And, and I do think that that is a challenge because in the Black community in particular, we will often hear angry Black woman. And it, and it feels like a, a catchphrase. There are probably memes about it, unfortunately, because we now have this stereotype in the work environment where if we're animated, or we're speaking up, or we're sharing our opinion, that it gets put into this, oh my gosh, it's an angry Black woman. Well, maybe it's just my communication style. So maybe, you know, I read a really good book, and it was called uh, Surrounded by Idiots. So maybe it's, it's that. We have different styles of communications. It's not that I'm an angry Black woman. I'm just more animated than you might be. And so we have to allow ourselves that that willingness to just be honest and candid and reflective about who we are, because we're not going to move this ball forward unless people are willing to challenge how they grew up and challenge the things that they thought they always knew. I would shift the focus back onto those with power to take on the responsibility to calibrate their perspective. My good friend, Deborah Goldstein, who does a lot of DNI work in the Men as Allies series with me, she calls this, you know, literally calibrating your perspective for these unconscious or implicit biases. And it's only then where you can sort of take off your lens, you know, your goggles where you're seeing the world from your perspective and create a psychologically safe workplace so people can be themselves and can be animated and know that they're not going to be judged for that. So they'll want to speak out and be heard. So I think the work to be done is making sure that those with power understand they need to provide that safe environment in the workplace. I would totally agree with that. And, and I would also say when I'm speaking with various communities, what I've tried to do when people have asked me for tips is share what has worked for me. I grew up in the inner city of Baltimore and growing up in the inner city of Baltimore to get to where I am now, 
there are lots of scraped knees, lots of disappointments, and there are lots of leading practices that I've adopted from other people that know me directly or I've watched them on LinkedIn. And and so I, I try to be a catalyst for disseminating that information to other people. And so one of the things I think we have a responsibility to do is to be more intentional about the people we work with. Because if your immediate direct leader isn't supportive, when you go to them about an advancement or being moved into a different role or some assignment, they're probably not gonna support you there if you did not get the vibe during your interview that they would be an ally. Because I think leaders have a responsibility to be mentors, coaches, and sponsors. But in today's environment, so many leaders have their own direct work assignments. They're leading by drive-by. They're managing by drive-by. It's a 15-second conversation at the coffee machine. It's, uh, we're going to see you in time for your annual performance rating. It's not the active engagement that I had on the front end of my career. And so I think when you're interviewing for a new role, you're interviewing the person. You're interviewing the culture of the organization to see if there is alignment between what people say and what they do. Because if you don't see that alignment, then it is going to show up in a number of other places. And I do believe love is as love does. So if your corporate culture and values say, we care about people, service to man and womankind, we are courageous, we stand for our core values. And then when you ask for evidence, where's the evidence? And and so in growing up in, in Baltimore, we had this expression, could you be convicted for being an ally? If you are an ally, where is the evidence? What, what have you done? And so when you're interviewing for a position, you should be asking your leader what, what initiatives are underway and what specifically can they expect from that person's leadership style? I mean, this is such wonderful advice and wisdom from both of you on navigating what can be very challenging circumstances. We want to talk a little bit more later about actionable steps that people in power or allies can take. But first, Kimberly, I think talking a little bit about your upbringing is a perfect segue. What we'd like to do is just take take a step back. We've been talking about the challenges or the problems that people face in the workplace, but we would like to hear a little bit about your journeys in professions where leadership is, I mean, frankly, mostly white and male. We got a snapshot of your bios up top, but you've, you've both accomplished a great deal. You're both eminently successful practitioners in your field, but you're much more than a resume. You've undoubtedly overcome many of the challenges you've described or, or you've confronted them at different points in your career. And so we'd like to hear about that. How did you get to where you are? Kimberly, I'd like to start with you. Just tell us a little bit about your journey and, and some of the challenges you may have confronted. As I said, I grew up in the inner city of Baltimore in the Sandtown, Winchester community. And so I think it's important for me to acknowledge that and say it right up front whenever I'm talking about where I grew up, because the image that people have of me today does not fit with their image of whatever they think growing up in the inner city of Baltimore is. And, and I would probably have to say most people think of it as the wire consistently across all of Baltimore because they don't really know the area. 
And so I want them to recognize that you can really get uncommon talent in uncommon places and that we should not dismiss or discount areas because of the way they're portrayed on television or in the media. There are lots of hardworking families in Baltimore who want the absolute best for their families and who are pursuing their dreams and trying to move their own personal balls forward. So definitely want to acknowledge that. Yes, there are challenges in Baltimore. And yes, there are any number of things that we wish wouldn't happen or haven't happened. But we also have another expression that says it is what it is. I grew up with uh, as the middle child. So I think that's interesting for all the middle kids out there. The middle middle is a great place to be sometimes. They're the best, Kimberly. I, I say that completely unbiased. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. See, I knew we had such great things in common. Amen. But I will tell you, too, I had parents who were not playing. They were absolutely all about education. My dad and mom were pen pals during the Vietnam War. They came and chose to live in Baltimore. And I want to make sure that people know they chose Baltimore as a a metropolitan area that they would want to grow up in. But more importantly, their values mirror the values of the CPA profession. Hard work, dedication, pay your dues, you know, make sure you're always being as ethical as possible in all things that you do and to just show up and be, bring your whole authentic effort every single time, all the time. And so through a lot of that coaching early on and mentorship, although I didn't think that at the time, I will have to say, when my parents were telling me why I couldn't go outside and they were telling me why when the street light came on, I need to be making, you know, making sure if I was out at the library, because that's all I could do. I better be on the way home. It paid off though. I graduated valedictorian from my high school, um, public high school. I took accounting. I knew I wanted to be a CPA since the third grade. Um, They did come and, and no offense, Jenna, they talked about being a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. When they got to accounting, they said CPAs manage the money. And I just was hooked from then on because all I knew at that point was that if you're managing the money, you have a place of influence. You have a place where you will most likely always have employment and you will always be valuable and needed inside an organization. And and so I just pursued that. For me, having had early mentors, people who pushed and pushed and pushed, I think that's important. And it shaped who I am today. And they told me early on, Kimberly, you're black and you're female. You're going to have to work twice as hard to get half the credit. You are class with the company you keep. Always remember that the toes you step on on the way up are connected to the rear on the way down. I mean, so many expressions and sayings that have so much more meaning for me today. But they basically said, don't try to be like everyone else. Because when you're young and you're nerdy, and and that was the point of me saying that I graduated valedictorian, I was unbelievably nerdy. And my mother would say, don't you dare try to be like everybody else. But I wanted to be like everybody else. I didn't want to be different. And so years later, I realized that my mom was preparing me for an environment where I would be the only one. There have been so many instances where not so much anymore, but I'd be the youngest one, the only minority, and one of few women. 
because my career did take that turn with technology in college. And I had a dual path with technology and then also accounting. And neither of those two fields, as I started, were heavily represented with lots of women or minorities. And so in both worlds that I walk, I am delighted to start seeing more and more representation across a wider spectrum, but we have more work to do. And so working across a number of fields, whether it's public sector, telecommunications, professional services, state and local government in particular, or at Oracle across a whole range of different technologies, I am well prepared. I am well prepared because of the confidence that my parents instilled in me. And it takes me everywhere. So wherever I've been around the world, that seed was planted early. And the core values that I sit upon are what guides me as the blueprint of how I operate and how I engage with other people. And that just means inclusion. And so I say inclusion lives here. I've made a decision, intentional and impactful, that I will be a courageous and compassionate ally in action when I can, how I can, and wherever I can. And that is based on how I think people view women and people of color in particular, and also based on your socioeconomic upbringing, how people are viewed there as well. So all of those things form the context that is Kimberly Ellison Taylor or Knowledge Empowerment Technology Solutions. Kimberly, I love the you kind of highlighted the environmental you know impacts over your your career and your life. Uh, you know the things that are kind of out of your control and those things that happened to you, but also talked about the ways that you responded, the way that you happened to the world uh, throughout that period. I think that's a great way to kind of show you know how, how upbringing, location, all those things are important. You know, but with with a, a focus, you know, you can develop the career and, and the professionalism that that you're focused on. Jenna, I don't know if you also suffer from being a middle child, like at least two of the people <laughs> on this call are, but we'd love to hear, you know, your take on some of the things, uh, you know, that you've seen across your career, uh, both for, for you personally, as well as systemically in, in the legal and professional environment. Well, I'm not a middle child. I'm definitely the baby. My sister probably still bosses me around, but I still look up to her. My childhood experience uh, was probably quite different, yet very similar. I honestly grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut. I had every opportunity available to me. My uh, parents, though very similar to Kimberly, were heavily focused on education and ethics. My parents actually met at Georgetown. My dad was in medical school and my mom was a fellow uh, seeking an advanced degree. And when they got married, she was expected to uh, stay home, which she did. And she was a fellow in microbiology and really loved it. And, you know, I think that I'm sure she often reflects on that decision. But of course, I fully appreciate everything she did for me growing up. She uh, really was the backbone of my education. I mean, she was just there constantly pushing me, uh, being my cheerleader and, and helping me excel. Definitely would not have gotten very far without her. So I think those core family values of education and ethics, 
you know, I, I've had a very similar experience to Kimberly. And generally speaking, I think, you know, women do really well in school. And I did really well in school. Women do a great job in school. And then once we graduate, it, it is a bit of a challenge. And perhaps that's because I wasn't uh, fostered to think about a career per se. And, and maybe we need to focus on how we're mentoring women early on in career selection, as opposed to just doing well in school and getting good grades and being a good girl and, and things of that nature. Now I, I understand how I'm perceived externally as having you know been quite successful and um, persevered and, and things of that nature, but it often feels like my reality doesn't match that outside perception. So um, I'm a partner at a large law firm most women in our industry don't get to experience that. The numbers are pathetically low in the ballpark of 20% or less, uh, much lower for women of color. So in a sense, I've arrived, but the journey continues. And sometimes it is literally a struggle to persist. So if it's, you know, not just getting the job, staying in the job, uh, it's, you know, getting the promotion, then it's, you know, growing the pie, maintaining your expertise, staying indispensable on top of everything else. I am also a mother. I'm also a wife. But for the first eight years of my daughter's life, she's now 16, I was a single mom. And I have had to persist in, in many different ways. It's a journey. And I think everyone's journey is unique. I think, as I said at, at the beginning, uh, even white men have challenges too, especially in these particular professions that Kimberly and I are in. I speak to white men all the time, especially associates and also my fellow partners, just because they're white men doesn't mean it's easy for them. These are difficult jobs to get and difficult jobs to keep. But there are these additional challenges that women and people of color do face. Thank you both so much for for sharing and for being so so open and honest. I think it's it's so important for people to to hear these stories and to hear uh, diverse perspectives and sometimes surprising uh, surprising takeaways. So thank you f- for that. What we'd like to do is is segue into some more of the the practical tips and advice that we promised and we want to set the stage by talking about the broken rung, which is a missing step that prevents marginalized people from climbing the corporate ladder. And whenever I hear about the broken rung, I often think about the phrase, carry as you climb. Sometimes people just need a hand getting over a broken rung. You've both talked a little bit about, about your upbringing and how your parents were so important. They fostered and encouraged you to succeed. And, and all too often, that kind of support is missing in professional settings. Lean In is an organization dedicated to helping girls grow up to be confident, resilient leaders, to helping women achieve their ambitions and working to create an equal world. Lean In has completed a study of the state of women in corporate America, and the findings, frankly, are are astounding, um, but also, Jenna, align with what you've observed in the legal profession. Over the past five years, the number of women in senior leadership has 
grown, but still women continue to be up underrepresented at every level. Only 26% of senior vice presidents are women. It's worse in the C-suite, where women represent only 21% of the workforce. Lean-in says, quote, conventional wisdom says that women hit a glass ceiling as they advance that prevents them from reaching senior leadership positions. In reality, the biggest obstacle that women face is the first step up to manager, or the broken rung. This broken rung results in more women getting stuck at the entry level and fewer women becoming managers. As a result, there are significantly fewer women to advance to higher levels. To get to gender parity across the entire pipeline, companies must fix the broken rung. The study focuses on women, but the insidious problem of underrepresentation applies to people of color as well. And we want to talk about what we can do to help resolve the problem. I would say a, a huge focus area because I will tell you that when I speak to various people about their career path, what I often hear is that they are underemployed. They are operating at a level below their capacity, below their employment history, below their academic uh, status that they have achieved. And, and it's interesting to me, I, I have come in contact with a colleague who I looked at her background, went to Ivy League, top 15 or, or 20 MBA program, engineer. And when I look at people who are in, who have similar status as her from an education perspective, she is at least three levels below where they are. So if she was, let's say, a vice president, her peers might be senior vice presidents. And then you have to wonder, why is that? And so we have to ask the question uh, when we are seeking new opportunities, can we see the org chart? And I am really serious when I say that because we will be invariably hired into roles where really we should have been in a role that was above that one. Because otherwise, we'll end up in the role and unhappy because we realize that we are have more experience than the person that was hired above us. And, and so that's definitely a challenge that I have seen in a lot of places. Even when you see women, and particular women of color, in leadership roles, depending on what the organization is, I would have to say, if we dug deeper, we would really find and bear evidence to, to that point that I just made. The other thing I would say is that, and I just said this the other day to someone, I have been in conversations where the job description was X, Y, and Z. But when it came time to have discussions about who internally could do it, that person, whoever was in the, the internal candidate, did not have the qualifications or skill sets. So my question would be, why would you have a succession plan and have people stacked up to say, this is who would take it over if someone were able to hit the lottery and then not give that person the job and then have them train their boss. And, and more often than not, that happens to minorities and it happens a lot to women. We are through with training our bosses to do the job that we should have had. We need to be able to be fully considered. And if we don't have the skill set, 
And that is absolutely a possibility. I don't ever want it to ever be perceived that we can't take tough feedback, that we don't understand that we could have a learning curve. We absolutely can. But give us the dignity and respect of letting us know what that is and then coming up with a performance plan that helps us achieve, not one that just manages us out the door. And I think we've got work in that regard to do because today it feels like the ball is is always moved. It's like Lucy with that football and Charlie Brown. Whenever Charlie Brown would reach to kick the ball, Lucy would grab it away. And it feels just like that. I've had so many colleagues tell me, and particular people of color, would say, well, Kimberly, I thought I knew what the job entailed. But then when they hung the ad for the job, they changed the job description to include things that the person who had the job before didn't do, and they were widely respected. Why are we changing the parameters to prevent people from getting the role as opposed to creating the environment for success that would enable them to stretch and do a good job and and do if the hard hours and the work environment is it is what it is. Some of that, I think, unfortunately, does come through the rites of passage. Maybe it shouldn't, but I'm Gen X, so I'm used to that. But what I'm not used to is not being clear. So subjectivity is not our friend. And I would encourage people in general to understand specifically what is required, because when it is subjective, that means that it's it's evolving when it comes to you. It's not evolving when it comes to someone someone went to school with or they were in the same fraternity with or they play golf with them. It's not evolving for them. Because they would get the opportunity to stretch into that role with only four or five of the characteristics. And you, working hard, went to all the, you know, air quotes, schools that you were supposed to go to. You got the credentials you were supposed to. You have stayed late. You come in early. You do all of that. And you still not at the level that you should be in. We have work to do. And I think people have to be honest about what that really looks like. And then I'll just give you another example. So when organizations say they have a a focus on making sure they have the best and the brightest, which is absolutely always going to be true. And then they say we have a focus on ensuring we have an inclusive team, which I think also is absolutely true. They are not mutually exclusive. But the way people sometimes give themselves away because when they say those two things, they add but instead of and. When you say but between those two sentences, it implies that you don't think that you can get both of them together. And we need to be careful about um, what we say and how that shows up in the decisions that we make. But I knew of a colleague, at least two, that were overqualified for the role They went through the process to get interviewed, and these were Black colleagues, and did not get the role. And the role went to someone who was not in the organization and did not have the skill sets that those two individuals had. And so I I am going to, at some point, have a conversation with the leadership team because it's not combative by no means. But I do want them to understand that the inconsistent training that is happening, because it's a drive-by, 20-minute, sense of belonging training that is happening, 
we have inconsistent results, inconsistent buy-in, inconsistent engagement, inconsistent application to what really allyship means. And that is demoralizing and discouraging to people who are working hard because they don't know if they're ever going to get there. COVID has taught us a lot, and I'm hoping the silver lining with COVID is a you know, more profound understanding of the uh, work-life scenario for working parents, not just for the women, but for the men too. I think we are starting to recognize men as parents in the workplace, certainly with respect to parental leave movements. But Still, we have a, a long way to go. I'm hoping when we return to an in-person work environment as opposed to a remote work environment, we'll no longer have to deal with uh, questions as to whether or not people are actually working when they're working from home. So I'm hoping that's one of the really good things that's come out of COVID. So if a woman asks to work from home one day a week or um, more often, that she's not going to be judged as wanting to be slacking off at home and not doing her job. Because now we all know it's possible to get things done working from home. That being said, in, in terms of the broken rung, COVID has also made me increasingly concerned about this next generation so many women have pulled out of the workforce because of the ridiculous demands that have been put on them in this remote work environment, especially with educating their children. I think we certainly saw that with the job reports from especially the end of the year, how many women were uh, you know, claiming unemployment benefits. So I'm particularly concerned about the broken rung that's going to come from COVID. And that should highlight one of the biggest contributing factors for this broken rung scenario has been and still is that women are uh, still the ones who get pregnant and still primarily the ones responsible for childcare. Now we're also recognizing they're also primarily responsible for elder care. So I think we really need to come to terms with this systemically and find ways to approach this so we can retain women in the workplace at that crucial part of their career where that rung is essentially broken. So it's internal factors and these external factors that need to be addressed. And again, I am hoping that COVID is this great awakening so people can can just see this for what it is. And you know, hopefully find creative ways to address it. Jenny, you've spent a significant time in, in rolling out programs and, and helping stand up this men as allies concept over the last couple of years. You know, is that respectful conversation element, uh, you know, significant in that space? But, you know, also let's start, let's step back a bit. You know, what does allyship mean, uh, Jenna, to you uh, in terms of a definition and then also in practice? To me, allyship is or should be as simple as just not being an a-hole, pardon my French, but it should be that simple. Like we I should, agree. We should <laughs> just know to be good people to each other. 
it shouldn't be that simple. Uh, I think when I'm parenting and telling my daughter what I think it means to be a good friend, like the answers are kind of the same here. That being said, I think the impact that implicit bias has means that you have to be proactive, as I said before, be willing to calibrate your perspective and be empathetic to your coworkers and then take action. To me, that's what being a good ally is. I don't think people mean to be a-holes. It's that implicit bias ends up with the same result as if someone were trying to be an a-hole. So we need to make sure that we are looking from a fresh perspective, understanding the perspective of our colleague when they're speaking to us. And that's when we can become an effective friend in the workplace, per se. I, uh, and my colleague Deborah Goldstein, she's a DNI expert with Driven Professionals. You know, we've developed this event series, Men as Allies, and we bring men at various stages in their career to share personal stories of when they were allies and frankly, times when they should have been a better ally, but learned lessons from their mistakes that they're willing to share. And their stories illustrate like five basic concepts that we believe are the foundations of being a better ally. And we call these concepts the ingredients for our allyship recipe. And they are, of course, calibrating your perspective, listening with an empathetic ear, speaking up for others when they're in the room and when they're not in the room, seeking out opportunities for others so we can rise together and affecting corporate change. So the program focuses on those five ingredients. Of course, there are other ways in which you can be an ally, but the idea is that it's action-oriented. And I know Kimberly speaks on this a lot too. So the practical tips that we give in that program illustrate how you can listen and create a safe environment for someone to come to you and trust you with their concerns and to speak up for others. For example, if someone is constantly interrupting, how can you, in a polite manner, approach them and hopefully change the way they interact in meetings? Or if someone is stealing credit, how can you address these issues in a manner that yields a positive result? Because this is also just common courtesy. You don't have to be in the C-suite to do these things. uh, Speaking up can also just mean making sure you're a cheerleader for them when you have a seat at the table and they're not even in the room. When they're uh, considering applicants for job openings, as Kimberly mentioned, make sure you're speaking up on behalf of people who are underemployed and deserve a chance to uh, have a stretch assignment or that new promotion. And for seeking out opportunities for others, we focus on, uh, you know, not just allocation of promotions, but 
allocation of learning opportunities, uh, making sure you're inviting junior people to a client meeting or to participate on a pitch, to be on a conference call or a Zoom call these days. So important. Also, if uh, you are given an opportunity, is there a way to make uh, room at the table to pull up another seat? So if someone asks me to speak at an event, I want to make sure that the event is an inclusive event and the panelists uh, are diverse. So I'm not going to join a, a conference or an event unless I see that they're making an effort to include other diverse people or let me invite some Again, I think it's a, a pretty poor excuse these days to say that you've tried and you can't find any diverse people to participate. I think to Kimberly's point, um, you can get you know the best of the best and diversity. Uh, it's not uh, exclusive. So uh, I always tell people, if you think you can't find anyone, let me know. I've got binders full of diverse people who are more than uh, capable of joining uh, panels. So uh, those are just some ideas in how you can implement these uh, concepts. And affecting corporate change, you know, that one could be a bit of a sticky wicket. But again, uh, if you are in a position to implement changes to the corporate system and infrastructure, that's fantastic. There are so many things uh, that senior management can do. You can also affect corporate change from a grassroots approach if you're not in those positions. Again, just by reaching out to your colleagues, letting them know that you are someone who is willing to be supportive in the workplace. And that person could be junior who is supporting someone senior to them. I see that often and sometimes some of the best men who are allies are those men who are working for senior women. Such excellent advice, Jenna. Thank you. Kimberly, I mean, you've, you've woven some practical tips through, throughout the podcast today, but I want to give you a, a chance if there are some actionable steps that you would like to highlight. Please tell us what works. I will tell you that what has increasingly occurred to me is that you can't live one way at work and do something different in your private life. If you make the decision to be an intentional ally, which I think is courage and compassion in action, it is going to show up in all of your interactions. And so when I think about allyship, and Jenna did such an amazing job laying it out, I would tell, the only thing I would add is that when I've been in the airport, how many of us have seen the parents struggling with the Cadillac stroller? And, and I can't tell you the times I've actually stepped up to say, listen, you take care of the kids. I'll get the stroller. I'll put it on the ramp for you. Or if you were to see a, a ball that potentially could run out into the street, you grab the ball and you're like, wait, you're not the parent, but you're still stepping in to be an ally of someone that you may never even say anything other than a smile. Just sharing a smile to say, yes, I grabbed the ball before your kid ran out in the street. There are so many ways that being a good person, as Jenna said, just shows up. And so by the time you get to the work environment, 
and you're wearing your good person uniform and wearing that good person uniform, you are looking for ways that you can elevate and celebrate the success of others. And so whether that means telling someone they did a great job in the presentation, whether or not that means that if they're not in the room, as Jenna said, speaking up when someone's saying, oh, we're looking for someone that can do X, Y, and Z, chances are they may have never come across that person ever, but because you brought their name into the equation, now they might have a chance they might not get the role, but you gave them a chance that they would not have otherwise had. And so I think that's important. It doesn't mean that it's all going to be 100% hunky-dory. It doesn't mean that. It means giving someone a leg up, a boost up, something that would help them shrink the gap so that they can leap over that broken rung. And most people are just looking for the opportunity but you've got to wear your good person suit all the time. And and as you wear it, you will become more and more comfortable and recognize that you don't have to be a female to support women. You don't have to be black to support black people or Asian to support Asian people or man to support men. Why do we have to have or? Why can't we support all of us? Why can't we figure out ways that we can all be allies one to the other? And I think it's important that we don't have disenfranchised groups. So I am conscious and concerned about our Caucasian male colleagues, because I know that when you're used to having it all, to have any perception that you might get less is difficult. And so it's messaging, it's bringing people along on this journey, it's making sure we don't leave anyone out, and it's growing the pie. Let's not talk about division, let's multiply. And when you think about multiplication and you think about more for everyone, then no one feels like it's less for them, and then they won't hopefully passive-aggressively resist what allyship means when you're speaking up for someone else to get an opportunity, because what you would know is that there will be more and other opportunities and that everyone can do good and well together. Guys, this has been such an... Let me start again, because saying the word guys there is completely ignorant. And self-awareness is key. (laughs) It is hard. I'm trying not to say guys. They told me to say folks. (laughs) I'm like, folks. Oh, my God. Yeah. Keeping that in and showing that you slipped, (laughs) you acknowledged it, and you moved on. That's what we, we don't want people to feel like they have to be perfect. That's okay to make mistakes and learn from them. And you lead by example by exposing your mistakes, right? You're, you're making a good case to keep it in. But <laughs> today's conversation has really been enlightening, impactful for me personally, and I'm sure provides a lot of content and, and thought for, for those in the professional services uh, world. Uh, I want to take a second here. I know we can't cover all diversity and inclusion issues within a, uh, you know, an hour long podcast, but I want to give each of you, uh, you know, some time to, to share any final thoughts you have based on our conversation. Kimberly, let's start with you. Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to, one, meet Jenna. I think we're going to be BFFs as as soon as we can get in person. We're definitely going to have to hang out for sure. And then, two, to just weigh in on such an important conversation. Allyship is so important. And the COVID-19 environment has reshaped all the things that we thought would never work. 
And now we know that we're going to have to provide additional support because there were so many corporations that thought they could not support remote work or they couldn't support virtual employees. And now that they know that they can, I am looking for promotion advancement, stretch assignments, and other opportunities to open up the door that will hopefully shrink that gap um, on the broken rung. And I think it's an important conversation to have as we all reflect, every single one of us reflects on what we can do more, women to support other women, women to support all of our colleagues just in general. I don't think we get a pass on not supporting each other or other communities. And I think it's important to to reflect on tips and leading practices, things that have worked for our careers, but quite frankly, things that have not worked for our careers. I, I Jenna, you've said on a couple of occasions where we've spoken um, in preparing for this, that it's important for people to see our imperfections. And I could not agree with you more. This is not a journey of perfection. It's a journey of falling down, getting up, making mistakes, and receiving and asking for grace. And I am hoping that through that process, we will have people who are willing to be vulnerable and who are willing to create psychological safety for others to thrive and to grow. Thank you for sharing that, Kimberly. Jenna, any final thoughts for our listeners? I would want to focus on encouraging not just the men to be great allies, but women to support each other. And in particular, I am just calling out to the white women out there and remind them that we have a responsibility to look to other women of color who need our support. And we all have power, and it's just a matter of how we use that power to help each other. And I think that we're just now starting to have these conversations, and they can be uncomfortable ones to have, but they need to happen. Every time I have reached out or helped someone, it has come back to me tenfold. Powerful thoughts to to round out the conversation, Jenna. Thank you. And thank you both for, for coming on the show. Thank you both for being DNI champions and for all that you do and for uh, being brave enough to talk about these issues publicly and, and tell people how we can do better. Uh, you know, my, my sincere hope is that everyone who listens today will be able to take something away that they can do to try to make things better in, in the place where they work. So thank you both again very much for coming on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Kimberly Ellison Taylor and Jenna Garver. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.